Now, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Love and I open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're fast approaching the end of this good gospel. I pray it's been uh, profitable. Matthew 26, the preached text will be verses 30 through 35, but I'm going to back up and begin in verse 26. Uh, it's very important, the context. We'll see why, why the disciples uh, and Jesus sang hymns. So verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, If they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same. Thus far reading God's most holy, infallible and inerrant word. Beloved, all flesh is as grass, its beauty is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and its flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. And this is the word of it was just read to you from Matthew, and the word by God's help will be preached. Please have a seat. Some of you, I know, are very diligent in all that you do. Very, very careful. Very, very precise. We tend to call those individuals perfectionists. I think I know a couple in my own life. Perfectionists want to get everything right, and they get a lot of things right. But there is no perfectionist that gets everything right all the time. And what happens with perfectionists is uh, if they're a writer, for instance, if they're working on the novel of the century, <laughs> they get writer's block. They're afraid to go forward. Uh, because why ruin a perfectly blank piece of paper, right? I get the same way, you know, when I end up dabbling with a little bit of watercolor. Boy, the pigment is so beautiful, that red and orange. Now I'm going to smear it and ruin it, you know? We're afraid to go forward because we're afraid to fail. And in no more important area than in the religious life. Because in our walk with the Lord, we walk as individual Christians in private, but we also walk in the family and we walk in the church. And if there's one zinger of, a, of an embarrassment and shame is when we teach our children the commandments and how to obey the Lord, and then we show them how to break them in thought, word, and deed every day. We're going to be strengthened by the Lord's teaching. The Lord will always reveal our weakness. It's very important to see what we do when that weakness is revealed. Because He will restore us when we come to him, admitting that we're sinners, admitting that we are wayward sheep, that we are ignorant, that we need saving. And this is what we need to learn today. Where there's strength, how we fail, and how Jesus does not fail. But he restores us. The teaching here is that we are strengthened, we are nurtured, we are helped by singing, and not just singing. It's a good idea to sing and whistle when you're happy and all that, but when we're singing scriptural songs and praise to God. And you will need, you'll need much strength 
as the kind of strength that is provided by singing songs, scripture songs. You will need much strength in order not to deny Jesus when tempted. But when you fail, I say when, not if. But when you fail, Jesus will welcome you back and restore you to himself. That's the teaching. We'll see this in three points. First of all, we'll see that worshiping God through hymns is meant for our strengthening. Worshiping God in song, and songs containing scriptural content, not the literal words, brothers. You know, we're not singing psalms today in the Hebrew. I wish we could. I wish every one of you read Hebrew. We could sing it. We could chant it. We do not. We sing to the understanding of the psalms. But we do sing the psalms. Now, we're in a transition period. The Lord Jesus, in the context, that's where I read back from, a, from verse uh, 26, that we're in a transition. Jesus has already instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance for the New Testament church. Right there in the Passover week, right there as the uh, Days of Unleavened Bread are, are being celebrated, right there as the, the priests are, are getting ready uh, in the temple for the sacrifices of the day in the morning and the evening, Passover, the greatest uh, of all feasts, commemorating the, uh, the freeing of the Lord's people from the bondage in Egypt, being brought into the liberty of the sons of God in the wilderness, of, uh, as, uh, the, the Red Sea being, as it were, a gate uh, to their liberty. The Lord opened the gates of salvation. They walked through. The Old Testament ordinances, as I say, as glorious as they were, were in fading. They were shadows. They were not the essence. I preached that last week. Christ is the essence. Christ and his work on the cross. That is what all those glorious ordinances and promises and types were pointing to. And so today, when we preach Christ in the church, we are preaching the whole body, the whole corpus of the Old Testament and glorifying God in it through his son, the Lord Jesus. So all of these ordinances, I say, were fading as shadows were fading. The sun was setting upon that form of administration in the Old Testament. And now a new, excuse me, in the Old Covenant. The new covenant, the new covenant now ordinances are now affirmed to us by Jesus. Beginning with the Lord's Supper, as instituted above, You'll notice that Matthew's wording is a little bit different than the rest of the Gospels, but all the Gospels have some kind of description of what Jesus said that night. And we can more or less get uh, the spirit of what's said. You don't have to be verbatim in the words to understand the mind of Christ as he was consecrating the bread and the wine and indicating his will, his last will, <laughs> for his people and remembering his great sacrifice. So this is new. This is to be carried forward in the, the, under the new covenant people of God, which we call the church. And we have to remember. And that is an ordinance. I spoke about the, the benefit of remembering in ordinances. And today we celebrate the Lord's Supper as an ordinance. Uh, if you don't know what I mean, catch up with that. I'll review last week's sermons. But uh, one thing here that is continued again, and we see it very beautifully, is song. Song and the singing of scriptures, uh, the song is to be continued in the church today. We have it by express commandment of Paul to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 5, 19, and also in Colossians, the church in Colossae, chapter 3, verse 16. We are to be singing to one another, encouraging one another, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that is something that the spiritual commonwealth of God called a Christian, every one of you is a uh, all the church is a prophetic commonwealth, and all, all of you who have the Holy Spirit are, as it were, Christ-like little prophets, priests, and kings. And we are to take up that anthem, and that is our spiritual service to the Lord every time we have a call to worship. Now, this is done by God's wisdom and by God's continuing institution. Um, the church must sing. And most churches are glad to sing, but a few very unusual groups in history have spun off and they avoid this. I don't know why. 
many make ex the excuse that they don't, they, they're tone deaf. Um, I'm not going to get into the polemic there. But the intent is, is here because it's given to us an express command. It's a positive command <laughs> that we would not be able to figure out. Why, why is singing so good for us? Why don't we just eat hot dogs instead? Well, it's because the Lord willed it so. We don't have to ask any more questions. That's why. It's a positive commandment. But we do see that, that hymns greatly enhance our worship of God. Now, I want you to be clever Presbyterians. A clever Presbyterian, when he sits down and preparing for worship, he looks at the order of worship. And you'll notice in our order of worship that we have begun with Psalm 115, and we just sang Psalm 118. Why do you suppose that's there? Because Psalm 115 through 118, inclusio, was a, a part of the Hallel, that is the group of psalms that were sung by every Jew at Passover. And uh, this is the hymn as the scripture calls it, hymns, it's there in the Greek. It doesn't say psalms, and the Greek says hymns. But these are psalms that were sung traditionally. Everybody knew what they were. Psalms 115, 116, 117, and 118. The halal. These psalms express what? The gratitude for what they had just received, which is the gospel in the form of bread and wine. They express praise. Psalm 115 is especially one of praise that the Lord has allowed us to see His glory and not the shimmering golden false glory of an idol. Psalm 116 has to do with genuine thanksgiving to God and lifting up the cup of salvation. It's really an amazing coincidence, isn't it? No, it's no coincidence. The Lord Jesus knew what He was doing on that Passover night in the upper room. And of trust in the Lord. Again, Psalm 115 speaks of the trust that the, the true believer has by believing. But then Psalm 118 uh, has, makes a couple of statements. Open to wide the gates of salvation. It says, uh, this is the, the stone which the builders rejected. <laughs> that's in there. As Jesus is being rejected by the authorities that very night, that's in Psalm 118. Uh, also, in Psalm 118, uh, as a, a, well, as a declaration uh, of, of his priesthood and, and many, many other things uh, interceding for the Lord's people. Um, open wide the gates that the righteous may come in. When you read Psalm 118, you see how very, very appropriate it is as a response to the Lord's table yeah, that Jesus has instituted and going forth to give the disciples strength that all of this is not, it's not a coincidence. The, the juxtaposition of these psalms and of the Lamb of God who's going to be serving also as a scapegoat, all the typology is crashing in on, on the Lord Jesus on that night. And they will not see it yet. They do not see it yet. In fact, they're, not, they're just not strong enough in the Lord to see it yet, but they will see it in time. But all these psalms express praise, thanksgiving, and trust to the degree that the disciples could at that time, and they were strengthened as they were going. It's a right response. Praise, thanksgiving, and trust is a right response to the gift, the Eucharist of the Lord's Supper. Especially, especially Psalm 118 might review that this, uh, this afternoon at home. And especially related to Matthew's Gospel and to Jesus' uh, Passion. Uh, you'll see numerous scriptures there fulfilled in Christ. Now, my friends, we, we, we can delight in God, and we can praise the Lord for His wisdom and for His power in ordaining, sovereignly ordaining in His providence, this, this uh, fulfillment in precisely uh, the moment where it is uh, to come about the reality. That is to say, the true Passover lamb, Jesus, is here now. Enough with shadows, we preach Christ. Enough with ceremonies, with incense. And there are no more sacrifices, no more altars. We don't, we don't have altars. All this is all in Christ. We should praise the Lord.
for his wisdom. We should pray for the truth that's displayed here on this, in this night. I hope you can see some of the, some of the int, int, glory uh, and majesty of God as he reveals this. But we see that Jesus, <laughs> Jesus understood this. And you know who really needed to be strengthened after that meal? Is our Lord. That, he's the one that needed the ordinances. And we are very, very wise and very meek and very humble when we follow the Lord meekly in His positive commandments and ordinances. We may not understand why. We don't need to understand everything. We're children. He's not going to explain to us how jet engines work. He's going to seat us on the jet and take us with us, take us with Him to heaven. That's our Lord. Praise the Lord for His sovereign timing here on that last Passover, the last shadowy Passover, the, the true exodus, opening wide the gates of salvation, parting of the Red Sea, parting of the Jordan. Here, here we see that biblical song is a means of grace. It's a means of grace to strengthen you in all your trials. And Jesus, and Jesus needed the strengthening. And Jesus, who is... <laughs> I'll tell you what. You know, what is man that God does with it? What are we that we can both be exceedingly sorrowful as, as Paul was for his people, the Jews, at their rejection of Messiah, and always be exulting in glad songs and hymns, giving thanks with all? What is it about the human soul that can contain both? Are we a composite or are we a single soul? What is this that we are? Jesus is a man of sorrows. He's about to... He's about to sweat blood from his eyebrow, whatever that means. I, the commentaries are no help here, folks. The Greek has is, is exhausted me. He knows what he's about to undergo, and yet he's glad. He's cheerful. He's glad to sing these songs. And he's told his friends, I have longed to keep this Passover with you. Because love, love forbears all things. Love hopes all things. Love never fails. Knowledge will fail. Many, many things in the Christian life will fail us. But Jesus needed this, this ministry to himself, and he happily sang these songs. After all, he was a Jew. And he needed the means of grace. And so he kept them. The disciples were strengthened to the degree that they understood the teaching. Now, again, it's not, as I said in the Sunday school class, it's not the reciting of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that makes us reformed. It's understanding the mind of God and the true understanding of Scripture that makes us reformed. And that's what we're hoping here. I, I am not one of those that superstitiously has the church sing psalms without their understanding what they're singing. It's no different than shoving pieces of bread and wine into an infant's mouth and calling it communion. If we aren't really praising God from our heart, if we're not really giving Him thanksgiving and knowing why we should trust Him, then we are offering God vain worship. And that's why we prepare for worship. That's why we have the bulletin sent to you at home. You can prepare, you can look over the Psalms. What in the world does it mean to... What is this? I, I don't want to set you up to trip you here. We want you to be excellent worshipers of God. That's what you're headed for in heaven. You might as well get some practice while you're here. To the degree that you understand the teaching, you will be strengthened. To the degree that you do not understand the teaching, you get nothing. Let me say that again. Well, you get, you get a memory verse, and you get something in your head that the Holy Spirit might use later. And he probably, if you're elect, will. Of course he will. He'll strengthen you in every way in whatever uh, scripture is left in you. But the Word and the Spirit always work together. They always work together. So that's why we say the disciples were strengthened to the degree that they understood the teaching. And later, when the plenary Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, they would, the Holy Spirit would reveal the profound depth of just what they sang. And suddenly Peter springs, springs forth and can preach very, very well. Christ crucified and ascended. And this gift of the Holy Spirit 
this is proof that the Lord, the Father, has vindicated his servant Jesus. And all who believe in him will receive this spirit, this gift, and eternal life. The promises to you and to your children, to those who are far off as well. The spirit reveals all of this. Do you have your favorite songs? I look, you know, Jimmy Buffett. Excuse me, uh, James Taylor died this, what, two, yesterday, the day before? A phenomenal composer. Uh, I, I really enjoyed his music. Uh, I, the song is wonderful. It speaks of our humanity. It's, it speaks of something wonderful and transcendent. Scripture songs will take that to another exponential power. Do you have your favorite hymns? Do you have your favorite songs? And have you checked how their verity, how they square with Scripture. Are you delighted that these, these hymns that you sing are, are saturated with the Word of God, and profoundly so sometimes? Take a look at Psalm 118. And you know, if you're having difficulty memorizing the Psalms, or any Scripture for that matter, or the catechisms, put them to song. That's just how I passed my licensure the first time in the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Name the book of the Bibles. <laughs> Ah, it's easy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Da, 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 da. You know, you got to take a pair of clogging shoes and go to town with that. Do you enjoy singing the songs? <laughs> I, I actually, one my, my first years here, I had a man in my office. He's yeah, complaining, "Oh, I hate those songs. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. I'm sorry." That, that kind of talk should not be allowed in the church. I'm just very sorry. And use memory. Uh, I'm going to pass out the, the writing that I did, my last pastor's note uh, from, from this past week, Covenant uh, Weekly, uh, how important memory is to sanctification. And uh, again, song is one of the great, great things that will enhance memory. The diligent use of the outward means must be engaged and from the heart. If Jesus needed it, being the perfect and sinless Son of God, we surely do. We would be most pitiful and arrogantly so to uh, shy from the diligent use of every means of grace that God provides in Scripture. But uh, we see that, that worshiping God through hymns then strengthens disciples. The second point here is that even strong disciples, strong disciples that have been strengthened, may lapse and deny even Jesus, their Lord, under trial, especially under severe trial and sometimes under uh, trial of life, a trial where some great loss is threatened. And this was the particular case in the scripture today. The scripture foretold that it would be so from Zechariah 13, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Every Every leader, every, especially every political leader, doesn't have to be even a Machiavellian, knows that if you take out the leader, that you will ruin the following. And there's no one left to lead. Sheep are lousy leaders. Leaders emerge from among the sheep. And some of those are good leaders. And some of those are bad leaders. And needless to say, if you take one of them out, you will diffuse whatever goodness or whatever badness was following the leader. Everybody knows that. But the commandment and the scripture fulfilling that commandment was from Zechariah, that Christ, who is the shepherd, was to be struck. In a sense, the commandment came to Caiaphas. But in a larger sense, it was God who would strike his shepherd. God the Father struck his son, our shepherd. Because God the Father imputed the sins of us all onto the head of Jesus. And that sin carrying that imputation, God treated it as real sin. And Jesus died on the cross as a vile sinner in the eyes of the Father. He suffered the death of sinners as a sinner though himself and really his essence was never tainted or corrupted by any sin at all. 
but it was most necessary, man having fallen, that a, an atonement be made, that a substitute be had. And Jesus understood this. And Jesus understood that this was his very mission. That God the Father would strike the shepherd, that he would impute sin, and that he himself would incur wrath. And this is the message of Isaiah 53, and really so many places in Isaiah, so many, so many types of the Old Testament, so many sacrifices, so many ordinances. The whole of the sacrificial Levitical system was based on this. It was not the blood of bulls and goats that God was pleased with. It's what the, uh, those, the blood of, of goats and of bulls pointed to. Isaiah 53, however, asked the question, who has believed our message? To whom has the, uh, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The sheep will certainly be scattered. Note all the alls. Note the alls in this text. You will all fall away, says Jesus, this very night. It's one thing to make a boast and then forget about it 14 years later. It's another thing to make a boast, be very zealous of it, and then fail within a couple of hours. How could this be? How could this be? You will all fall away this very night. Now, all the disciples, we like to, we like to sing, oh, Peter, Peter, good grief, he's just, he's just a ball of zeal here. You know, like, it's so impulsive. You know? doesn't, he doesn't, half the time he doesn't know what he's saying. He just, he's out with it. But really, it's not just Peter. All the disciples protest. No way. No, no, Lord. And that's not going to happen. And the Lord already said that the scripture has to be fulfilled. When are we going to get in our heads, we Calvinists, that there must be divisions in the church, that the man of God might be rightly revealed and affirmed? We're not going to have perfect unity. We're not going to have perfect knowledge. We're going to have to forbear with one another patiently. We're going to have to forgive one another. When are we going to believe the scriptures that that is indeed the case and not treat ourselves as severe disappointments when we look at each other in the eye? No way, the disciples protest. No, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a good disciple. I'm going to be a, a good Presbyterian. All left him. All fled and that's what comes up in verse 56 later, future. Jesus knows the weakness of his disciples. Jesus knows the horrible temptations that are coming to him just now, the power, the draw of the enemy, that he might compromise the mission, that there be any other way except for his cross. There might be another way of atoning and of salvation. He's, in a sense, painted himself in a corner, you might say, although he's longed for it. Still, a person recoils, a human will recoil at pain and shame and mistreatment and mocking. You've got to be a psychopath today to walk into this thing knowingly, unless, of course, you know that in the end, you have a redeemer, and that's just the last point that we're getting to. Jesus knows the weakness of the disciples. He loves them anyway. Jesus, when he called them, knew expressly that they would all deny him in his, in his hour of weakness. And yet he loved them, and he drew close to him, to them, and he would forgive them, though they would shame him disown him. He would pray for them in Gethsemane later, Gospel of John. And he would take their names upon his lips and speak their names before the Father in intercessory prayer and making supplication and entreating for them that they receive the Spirit. That's what Jesus does as our high priest and the victim of the cross. He loves them. Though he knew, though he knew, that they would betray him. The disciples, however, don't understand their weakness. Oh, wow, look, I mean, guys, look, we, we're, we're doing the stuff of an Elijah here. You know, we, you know we're, we're casting out demons. We, 
no cure leprosy. We're great. We're just great. They didn't understand that they could do nothing at all without Christ. And at that point of weakness, the scripture must be fulfilled. God will withhold grace. And when God withholds grace, he does so that we might come to our senses to know that we're nothing. And he will continue to do that. When we come to the means of grace and we get strengthened and we rise up to a new stature of righteousness and knowledge, and then we get arrogant, and then we get boastful, and we get a big head, and then we overreach, and then we start condemning people that don't agree with us. We, we will shun them. They bother us, or especially people that outshine us and seem to have more knowledge. That really irritates us. Peter, in particular, did not understand his weakness, and he vehemently protested Jesus' prophecy. He boasts <laughs> in contradiction to the scripture that he knows he loves. Have you, never have you never confessed your own contradiction? As Calvinists, we know far more than, than we are able to do. We, of all Christians, are more guilty than the rest because we know far more of God's absolute sovereignty in all things, and yet when we hit our thumb with a hammer, wow, what, what kind of word was that we just heard in the kitchen? Peter boasts, but not in the Lord. Peter boasts in the flesh and human will, his power. I will not deny you. And he will resolve to persevere with Jesus. Are we condemning uh, resolving? Are we condemning persevering? Not at all. <laughs> no, not at all. That's what we're supposed to do. But in all our strength, in all our willing, and all our persevering, guess what? <laughs> if the Spirit's not in it, it's, it's not by strength, it's not by might, it's by the Spirit of the Lord. All the disciples, however, did so. <laughs> we need to back off of Peter a little bit. Jesus here, final words, before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me. <clears throat> what he's saying is, they probably, they probably concluded this meal around 11 and they had a walk out to the Mount of Olives, there, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had his prayer and he'd be arrested. Yeah, but before dawn, just that, just that soon, uh, it, I was in the Keys, the lower Keys, and I, I stopped the gas up at a gas station and... Uh, I think it must have been about 6.30 in the morning. I had, not, <laughs> I had not been close to a rooster in years. And uh, I'm coming out of the grocery store with uh, gas in the pump, you know, my car, gas tank, and, and, and a, I think a, probably a, pro a protein drink or something to, to drink. And right next to me, the old male rooster lets out a a cock-a-doodle-doo, and I, it just sent me screaming. And I forgot, well, that's what happens in mornings throughout most of the, the, the neotropical world. It's just a marker in time, and it, morning comes quickly. Our failures are designed to humble us. Our failures are designed to shame us. Stop rescuing people that need to be humbled until they repent. Stop flattering people that they're saved when they show no signs of turning to God or new obedience. That is not the case. They must feel the pinch. They must feel bitterly the agony of their denial of Christ. Before the rooster crows three times, let it be done quickly. Let, let sin in the church be brought forward to the light. But my friends, these failures are not to destroy us. There is edification and failing. The old rotted wood is taken away, that the new attic, the new bedroom, 
The new annexed bathroom may be built onto the house. Otherwise, the place is going to rot. The edification goes forward. But that which is putrid and deadly must go. You are to put on the new man, and you are to put off the old man. And that must be done every day. If we can't see sin in our every day, we need to ask the Lord to reveal it. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Our failures then will humble us, will shame us. But if we're in the Spirit, if the Lord, by His grace, restores us, He will renew us, and we will esteem Jesus' care for us even more. We'll see that it was because He persevered that we persevere in Him. The grace of perseverance is not the Holy Spirit plus you. The Holy Spirit is Christ's perseverance taken to us in the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this again. You have no new righteousness, no new obedience, no new perseverance whatsoever. Your perseverance is the perseverance of Jesus as he's going through this trial, being strengthened by the Psalms, being strengthened by the Word of God, being resolved, going forward. And because he persevered and triumphed over sin and every trial and, and, and temptation through death even, his resurrection, he of himself gives us of his merits in the Holy Spirit. It's not you plus the Holy Spirit that gains perseverance. It's Christ applied to you in the Holy Spirit. And you, by God's, by God's grace, turning and receiving that. The final point is that Jesus will graciously restore all lapsed, his lapsed disciples. And that's good news. Because he strengthens. But in all our strengthenings, we will fail. Shall we give up? I, I can't go to that church. It's full of sinners. You don't know how bad those people are. Well, I don't think I know how bad I am. I don't think I know how bad I am. Jesus graciously restores these outrageous, boastful sinners. They have lapsed. They have denied them publicly, shamefully. But Jesus not only foretells it, but he consoles the 11th already. And he speaks to them, prophesying that he would return and that he would take them up again, lest they be utterly despairing. That's what a perfectionist would do. That's what a legalist will do. He'll throw the towel into the ring. It's all over. There's no sense going forward. It's not a perfect church. It's not a perfect relationship. He counsels the eleven against utter despair. He will meet these disciples again in Galilee, where they first met. They can begin again. Jesus has new beginnings. He's, he's not going to give up on you just because you derailed. Jesus prophesies that he will rise again after I am raised up. After I am raised up. The disciples heard they didn't understand yet, but they would. They would rejoice greatly. And then Jesus would commission them from Galilee to the ends of the earth, right from where they began. You begin with Jesus, you will conclude with Jesus. He who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of his salvation, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work will certainly do it because he is the Redeemer. He is the Savior of the world. Jesus saves sinners. Sinners don't help Jesus to save them. If that were the case, we'd be, we'd be, we wouldn't be here this morning. We, we would have given up on one another long ago. But Jesus saves sinners. Let me conclude this. Singing scriptural songs and praise to God in a gathered church strengthens you spiritually. It's a means of grace. You should sing. If you're here and you're sorrowful, you're brokenhearted, that's why the medicine is there. This is not a place to protest your anger against anybody by not singing. That's a breach of faith and a mighty sin against God and his ordinances. It's a, it's a repelling of the, of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't try it. If you're sorrowful, 
you're sorrowful in Babylon, you can hang up your harps. You have no ordinance to sing the songs of Zion before the Babylonians. But you do have an ordinance to sing when called upon by the Lord in the assembly. How can you do that? By the almighty power of God that he gives in his Holy Spirit. By faith. By faith you have the victory. And by faith you overcome. You must engage the means of grace. You will need much strength. You're not wiser than God. You will need much strength in order not to deny Jesus under trial before the world of men and even in the church. You will need much strength not to deny Christ. But when you fail, and when you will, and you will fail, and when you fail, as we often do, as we regularly do as sinners, Jesus will always welcome you back. And he will restore you. Just be sure to return to him. That is to say, just be sure that you repent when you hear his voice. And then you can rejoice freely because Christ is yours and you are his. So my friends, memorize all manner of hymns and songs, even, even happy songs. The creation is a wonder and, and music is, is all over the place. You can, it's all right to memorize love songs and songs of great beauty, historical songs, the, the national anthem. It's great. We can express all manner of thanks to God and be, make melody to him for any number of reasons under any number of circumstances. I think it was Psalm 104 I was reading the other day. Praising the Lord for streams and the depths of the ocean and the teeming creatures. I go, man, I feel like I'm in the Georgia Aquarium here. Well, yeah, you can worship in the Georgia Aquarium, sure. You can worship anywhere as you experience all things in Christ. So, so love music, love psalms, love songs. Jesus and his disciples did. Sure. Uh, by the way, to memorize these, it'll take time. So what? So make the time. I mean, we, we've got all the same amount of time. Take the time that will help you delight in the best things, to bring you the best strength, the best joy. The gospel does not allow us to boast in the flesh. You know that? Any braggarts? That's not, a gospel, that's not a gospel liberty. If we boast, we must boast in the Lord. Otherwise, we have no knowledge of, of Christ. And if you do, the Lord is very, very faithful, and you can predict a fall. <laughs> it's, 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 gonna, it's coming. If you overreach, you'll trip. Just like in the kitchen and in the dog. Learn to comfort, learn to delight in boasting in God and Christ. We do this best at worship. We, when we preach Christ, we, we strongly boast in the Lord and in, his, in his, his person, His work. Learn to delight in rejoicing and boasting in Christ. When, you, when you're singing, when we're praying all together, this is what we're doing. We're boasting in Christ, our gospel. And then, of course, learn from your falls, learn from your spills. God is not mocked. Trust in the flesh, however, has to go. Ignorance has to go. It is no part of our edification to remain in ignorance. We must deconstruct before we construct. Deconstruct ignorance. Be careful when you say no. No, Lord Jesus, uh, that's one of Peter's favorite expressions. It comes reflexively, but you know it in your own soul when you're saying, no, no, Lord. Can you imagine? We do it all the time. Every sin is a raising of the fist and saying, uh, you will not reign over me. Pitiful. But learn how to return to Christ's comfort after repentance. Or do you know about Christ's comfort? Do, do, do you know what it's like to be at prayer and actually receive delight? I mean affection. Peace. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, have you ever laughed in prayer? Only a Christian can laugh in prayer. Muslims don't laugh in prayer. That's considered blasphemous. Christians can laugh in prayer because of the irony of so much that they see in life. 
return to Christ through repentance. It's a sweet thing to repent. And renewed obedience. No greater confirmation that you have remission of sins than a new and strengthened walk in the Lord. No greater affirmation, no greater assurance that you're a true Christian than when you find yourself and the witness of the church conferring that you have recovered from a spill. However, if you stop short of repentance and merely confess your sins without turning, without making reconciliation, without making repair, you can try to convince yourself of your assurance all you want. Oh, it's the doctrine of the church. It'll taste like stale bread. You do not yet understand, I do not yet understand as we should. The walk of the Lord is one of humility. That's why we keep studying. Until a humble people, a person keeps not only learning, but applying the scripture to themselves. You never stop learning as a Christian. Why? Because you don't know anything. We see in a, a glass darkly. And until he comes, that'll be the case. So we keep learning. The more we learn, the more we boast in Christ. And the more we learn, the more we need repentance. The more we learn, the more we're thankful that he has imputed sin to Christ and not to us. Rather, he's imputed righteousness to us. We who do not deserve it. The more we learn of our lack of steadfastness in prayer, the, the more we will confess our ungratefulness of prayer. We will forget to thank God for manifold mercies and most of our personal petitions to get these monkeys, these brass monkeys off our shoulders. Our prayers will be filled with complaints to God, not, not, not addressing the issue that he's already been full of mercy to us even that morning. Thousands and thousands of merciful things that the Lord surrounds us with every morning. A true disciple should be full of thanks. Should be, but we rarely are. We need great humility. But the comfort here is that Jesus does not, and God does not trip us up to, to laugh at us. He doesn't delight. He doesn't take sport in us failing him. Jesus is there to be glorified as a savior of sinners. And we can, re we can rejoice in the hope of glory. And that, my friends, is the gospel. Jesus saves. It's built into his name. That's what we preach. He saves people that have even made great boasts who have come to their senses and say, yeah, you're right. Save me. Save me from myself. I'm the one that needs saving. Now, to remind us of that, we have a gift, and that's the Lord's Supper. We fence that table every week. You know the routine, right? It's an ordinance. That's why it's a routine. But it's a means of grace, and it's promised to, uh, the Lord has promised to meet us there. He's promised to give us strength. It's only right that uh, one of your under-shepherds would ask you, how, how did you do at the table? Did, you, did it seem to give you new hope or new comfort? Was there delight in communing with God? And then afterwards we'll sing a hymn. We've already sung Psalm 115. We've sung 118. We've got it reversed. But now we're going to celebrate the Passover. Who is Christ? Will the elders please come forward? from the scripture for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night which he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks he broke it said this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup again after supper 
He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are sick and weak. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined. So we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you use such common things as bread and wine to cause us to remember the greatest things, the most superlative things, which is Christ our Lord and the gift of his, his person to ourselves. We thank you that this ordinance is here for strength. We pray, Lord, that we would, by faith, commune with you and in the spirit, commune with one another in bonds of love. Pray that this table would always be one of peace. We pray, Lord, that as we partake of the wine, especially that we would remember Christ's suffering, his, his, his complete shedding of his life, given the complete giving of his life, anticipating the sufferings, but knowing they were necessary. And we pray that as that cup is passed, that we would also remember that is our lot as Christians to partake to some degree, even as minor as it might be, to partake of some degree of the, the sufferings of Christ as we are his body on earth. We pray that we might drink rejoicingly and not in sorrow, faithfully and not in unbelief. We pray that we would uh, drink and eat in joy with thanksgiving and praise. For you are a great God, greatly to be praised in Christ and his salvation. Cause us to remember all these things. In Jesus we pray, amen. Just two, right?